Welcome to Village Mentality, where melanated people are connected in spirit, love, and community. What's up, kings and queens? Beautiful people everywhere. It's your girl, C.K. McGee, and I am your host. What's up, beautiful people? How's everyone doing? I pray that you are all doing as well as you can be. Welcome to another episode of Village Mentality. Now, if you did not have a chance to hear last week's show, then I invite you to catch up with that and all past episodes of Village Mentality on Spotify, Anchor, Google Podcasts, Breaker, or Radio Public. Now, every Wednesday night at 6 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, you are more than welcome to join me here in the village as I talk about different topics that impact BIPOC communities, encourage self-care practices that can help to rejuvenate your spirit and soul so that you can continue to be the fantabulous kings and queens that you are, as well as looking at all of those topics that are discussed through a mental health perspective. Now, without further ado, I believe it is time for me to take my first walk of the evening to my musical jukebox. This first song was released as a single in the UK on May 14, 1984. It became this English duo's first UK and US number one hit. The single was certified platinum in the US which at the time commemorated sales of over 2 million copies. Again, Village, these young people today do not understand the feat that that is and what an accomplishment it is, right? Now, the music video features Michael and Ridgely wearing oversized message t-shirts that read Choose Life, and they were created by Catherine Hamnett, which started this craze which was covered in the 2002 VH1 series, I Love the 80s, cause I do. <laughs> now the song was ranked number 28 on VH1's 100 Greatest Songs of the 80s. Yep, if you said wham, well here they are with Wake Me Up Before You Go-Go. Out of my way, you make the sunshine brighter than the darkest day. 
American recording artist, Brandy, with Sitting Up In My Room. It was written and produced by Babyface and recorded by Brandy for the soundtrack of the 1995 film, Waiting to Exhale. Ladies, some of us are still waiting to exhale, aren't we? And it starred the late great Whitney Houston, an actress and queen in her own right, Angela Bassett. Y'all remember when she set that car on fire and walked away with that little cigarette flip? You remember that? girl, she was fierce. Now, the track was one out of five singles that the album spawned, and it reached number two on the U.S. Billboard Hot 100, becoming one of Brandy's most successful singles. It won the award for best, um, excuse me, for best song from a movie, and it was nominated for best video from a film at the 1996 MTV Awards. 
We're a village, you know me. I like to take a little bit of time to talk about some things, you know, whether it be about current events, entertainment, or something that is just on my mind. So why don't we get into my segment called Let's Talk About It. Now, kings and queens, if you've been following me since season one, then you have heard me speak about him before. And it is really urgent that I speak about him again. And I'm speaking of Julius Jones, who has been on death row in Oklahoma for the past 19 years for a 1999 murder that he's always maintained his innocence in. He said he has never had a part in this murder. Now, Mr. Jones, who's represented by federal attorneys Dale Bake and Amanda Bass, was convicted and sentenced to death at the age of 19 and has now spent half of his life in prison waiting to be executed for a crime that new and compelling evidence suggests he didn't commit. Well, you know what? If you've been following me, it's not even that it's new and compelling evidence. It's evidence in the first place that already proved he wasn't guilty, yet they still convicted him and sentenced him to death anyway, right? So now more than 6.3 million people and counting, I know this because I'm one of them, has signed a petition supporting Mr. Jones in his fight to prove his innocence in the killing of Paul Howe, who is a businessman from Edmond, Oklahoma. Now, despite this, despite his, you know, maintaining the fact that he's been innocent, that he was not a part of it, and all other kinds of evidence that prove he's not really guilty, um, his execution is actually scheduled for November 18th. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, you've heard it correctly. Tomorrow, okay? Now, he is one of seven people that are facing execution in the state of Oklahoma in the next six months. If carried out, they will be the first executions to take place in Oklahoma since 2015, after a series of botched executions resulted in a statewide moratorium, right? So in all actuality, if it had not been for that, Mr. Jones may have already been executed, okay? Now, if you haven't been following, if you're not familiar, because they are talking about him in the news because the, ex the execution date is arriving, so they've been talking about him. But if you're not familiar with the case, here are some of the things that you need to know. At the time that this crime was committed, Julius Jones was at home having dinner with his parents and sister, okay? But for some reason, his legal team at the time failed to present his alibi at his original trial. His trial attorneys did not even call him or any of his family members to the stand. How do you do that? If you're supposed to get a fair and partial, impartial, you know, um, uh, you know, case or, you know, how, how do you, a hearing, excuse me, how, how do you not call him to the stand to testify on his own behalf or the people that he was with? How do you, how do you not do that? Okay. 
Mr. Jones did not match the description of the person who committed the crime, which was provided by a sole eyewitness. And that witness said that the person who killed Mr. Howell was somebody who had about one to two inches of hair that, um, you know, they were wearing like this stocking cap, if you will. And the hair was coming out of the edges of the stocking cap. Well, guess what, ladies and gentlemen? Julius Jones, about a week earlier, had gotten a haircut. And if you've ever seen a picture of him, he wears his hair very close. Now, I know our hair grows, but it doesn't grow that fast, okay? And the eyewitness in this case was Mr. Howe's sister. Uh, Mr. Howe was killed in the driveway of his home and in the presence of his sister who was with him and two small children, I believe. It was dark. It wasn't like it was, you know, in the in daylight hours or during daylight hours. And, you know, she's fleeing at the time that, you know, this is occurring because I believe that it was set up as a, a carjacking. And unfortunately, he was killed in the process of that. So here she is. She's rushing to get the kids out the car, running to the house. She claims that she was able to make this valid ID. And um, I believe I've mentioned before on the show, you know, eyewitness testimony, even though it is used a lot, it is not the most reliable. Um, it's not the it's not the most reliable, yet they convicted him based on that. Also, a man by the name of Christopher Jordan, who actually matched the eyewitness's hair description, but claimed only to have been the getaway driver and not the shooter at trial. He was the state's star witness against Mr. Jones. Hmm. He matched the description. You know, we usually don't like to say that or hear that these days, but he actually matched the description and they completely ignored that and made him their star witness. Right. And in exchange for him testifying that Mr. Jones was the shooter, Mr. Jordan was given a plea deal for his alleged role as the quote unquote getaway driver. He served 15 years in prison and today he is free. Isn't that something? The person that actually fits the so-called description is free living his life while the life is being sucked out of the person who wasn't even there. And there is no evidence to support that he was there. Can you imagine that? I mean, just, just think about that for a moment. You're minding your business somewhere, just doing your own thing. You have no idea of anything else going on other than what it is that you're doing. And then suddenly the police roll up and they handcuff you and take you to jail and tell you, you killed somebody. You know, they intimidate you and you know you did it and, and all of this stuff. And the next thing you know, you're on trial for a crime that you didn't commit. And then they sentence you to death? I mean, think about that. That's what they do to Black men, innocent Black men across the country every single day. I mean, look, we know that there are two trials that are going on right now, right? That Rittenhouse uh, um, trial with, with, that, with that boy in, in Wisconsin who really thinks that we all believe he broke down crying on the stand. Mm -hmm, sure. And then Ahmaud Arbery's trial is going on at the same time, you know, as well. 
okay? The man, we saw the video, right? Didn't you see he was shot at close range? He was minding his business taking a jog. So here, you're minding your business at home with your family. You're enjoying family time. Now you've been convicted for a murder you didn't commit. I'm just, yo, that's deep, okay? It's disturbingly deep. Now, three people incarcerated with Mr. Jordan at different times have said in sworn affidavits that he told each of them that he committed the murder and framed Mr. Jones. Now, none of these three men have ever met Mr. Jones and they do not know one another. And none of them have been offered a shorter sentence or incentive in exchange for disclosing Mr. Jordan's confessions, okay? So let's talk about the impact of racial bias in Julius Jones' case. Number one, Mr. Howe, he was a white man and unfortunately he was killed, but it was in a predominantly white neighborhood. Immediately, the then district attorney, Bob Macy, characterized the crime as an act of violence committed by black men fueled by drugs. And this narrative was perpetuated by media coverage, right? This man doesn't know Julius Jones, but this is the stereotypical types of, you know, arguments that are made against our black men every single day, all right? Two, the officer who arrested Mr. Jones called him the N-word and dared him to run, and then implied that if he did, he would shoot him. Isn't that lovely? Hmm. Number three, 11 out of the 12 jurors at Mr. Jones' trial were white. That sounds familiar too, because let me see, let me see if I can think about, all right, that's what's happening with Ahmaud Arbery's trial. 11 white jurors and one black, right? One of those jurors, Julius Jones' case, referred to him by the N-word and then suggested that he should just be taken out behind the courthouse and shot. Hmm. Hmm. Wow. Really? So he's not even, he's not even older trial. Just take him out back, huh? Shoot him for the N-word that he is, huh? That's lovely. And then four, one third of district attorney Macy's death penalty convictions have been overturned due to prosecutorial misconduct. Say what? Yeah, many of those whose convictions were vacated are black people. Shocker, shocker. I mean, are you surprised? What did you think I was gonna say? To date, 10 people sentenced to death in murder cases in Oklahoma have been exonerated. You don't say. I mean, we are talking about Oklahoma, right? Oklahoma, where the wind comes sweeping down the plain and the waving wheat can sure smell sweet. You mean, you mean that Oklahoma? Right, right, right. Now, Oklahoma's pardon and parole board they actually voted three to one to recommend clemency for Julius Jones on November 1st. Now the recommendation to commute Mr. Jones' death sentence to life in prison with the possibility of parole now goes before the Oklahoma governor, which is Kevin Stitt, for consideration. 
Now, so far, kings and queens, he is still scheduled for execution, as I said, tomorrow, November 18th. Now, the recommendation for the board was actually reaffirmed, okay? They had a hearing back in September, in fact, September 13th of 2021, where they also recommended the same thing, that it be commuted to life with the possibility of parole. So this is not the first time that this has been brought to Governor Stitt. What's he waiting for? I don't want to answer that question, but you know where I'm going. Hmm. So I'm just wondering, right, if he's going to take action, if he's not going to take action, I'm not sure. Like, he doesn't feel in his spirit that he needs to do all that he can to correct this miscarriage of justice. I don't know. When exactly are we supposed to overcome I'm just wondering. So just last month, top executives from 16 of the nation's leading mental health advocacy organizations are applauding the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention for adding mood disorders, including depression and schizophrenia spectrum disorders, to its list of underlying medical conditions associated with higher risk for severe COVID-19. Now, this updated guidance from the CDC reflects the lengthy body of research confirming the additional risk from these conditions. Research has found that schizophrenia in particular is second only to age as the greatest risk factor for COVID-19 death. Additionally, other research demonstrates that a very modest effort to encourage vaccination leads to consistently higher rates of vaccination for people with severe mental illness than that of the general population. Oh my goodness, right? Now this new guidance by the CDC directing public health officials to prioritize those with mental health conditions identified as high risk for severe illness or death due to COVID-19, it's going to have a drastic impact on survival rates with only modest public investment needed. Communities across the country are relying or do rely on the CDC um, as the uh, underlying condition list to allocate scarce resources. And today's decision, as it was stated, uh, to include some mental illnesses will have an immediate positive effect. Okay. Now, many communities will use this list, Target Outreach, for eligibility to access uh, booster shots for services and housing and other important benefits. And they are encouraging, they are encouraging uh, um, them to do it as quickly as possible. Now, people with severe mental illness make up the second most vulnerable population susceptible to dying from COVID-19, said Lisa Daly, who is the executive director of the Treatment Advocacy Center. She goes on to say, officially designating mental illnesses that have been confirmed by research to carry a unique mortality risk during the pandemic or prioritization by the CDC is a scientific and moral imperative. 
This action has the potential to save many lives, unquote. Now, as data from the COVID-19 pandemic has unfolded, they have kept a careful eye on those with the highest risk. Research has shown that it includes people with certain mental health conditions. The CDC has now validated what we have known for many months, and we must get the word out. The data is clear, the science is clear, and everyone living with a mental health condition should be aware, said Schroeder Stribling, who is the president and CEO of Mental Health America. She's really nice. I saw her this past summer when uh, Mental Health America had their annual um their annual conference in Washington, D.C. It was mostly a virtual event, but there were those who were in attendance. Um, And, you know, she seems to be really about the business of advocating uh, for those who do have, you know, mental health conditions. So now mental health and substance use disorders have been marginalized for too long, said Benjamin F. Miller, who's the president of Wellbeing Trust. Okay, the action of the CDC to properly name mental health disorders as a priority condition helps right a wrong and it puts mental health back in a place where it belongs, center and integrated with other facets of our health. Now, regardless of what your opinion may be on this, and quite frankly, anything having to do with this pandemic, I personally am just happy to know that more and more awareness is being brought so that we can hashtag break the stigma of mental illness and so that we can find effective ways to support those around us who may be struggling. Here's to brighter days. So, okay, kings and queens, I thought that after all that slightly heavy information that I just shared with you, but, you know, it was also necessary, I thought I could leave you uh, today in the Let's Talk About It segment with something a little bit lighter, a little bit more cheerful, you know? Um, We're always hearing about all kinds of really kind of just depressing negative stuff that's happening in the news or on TV. Um, And I thought that this might be something that you could at least smile about if you didn't witness it by watching it yourself. So it had been all over, you know, the news and everywhere it seemed I was watching anyway, that Adele was having her one night only um, concert in which Oprah Winfrey was also going to interview her as well, right? So I don't know about you, but I love Adele. I can't say that I know every single song. I'm definitely a newcomer, but I enjoy what I've heard of her so far. And I really like her attitude. She reminds me of a friend of mine. So anyway, uh, she helped to pull off an iconic proposal during this concert. And, you know, the concert was held uh, in, you know, Los Angeles. Um, It was at the Griffith Observatory right, to be exact. And this gave Adele an opportunity to not only sing some of our old favorites, if you will, but to introduce some of the new songs on her latest album. Now, uh, for all of you who are familiar with Adele, she's kind of been off the scene for like the last six years. And 
you know, some things have been happening in her personal life. And she talks about those things with Oprah. But this right here was kind of special. Uh, and she was able to help Quentin Brunson pull off his proposal to his girlfriend of seven years. And her name is actually Nan. Now, the thing of it is, is that we didn't really get a chance to hear how it all tied together until they were interviewed on uh, CBS uh, this morning, you know, with Gail King and everybody. And they were able to kind of tell their whole story. Now, they live in California. They have family that's on the East Coast and everything like that. And of course, the family on the East Coast was watching, you know, the concert. Now, all along, Ashley had been told earlier in the day by Quentin that they were going to go like pumpkin picking and that they were going to, you know, go on a hayride, right? Now, he probably a few days before the concert, um, answered a survey, if you will, you know, identifying Adele fans as to why they thought that they should be picked, you know, as, um, you know, a couple who was ready to, you know, go through this proposal period, if you will, right? And he had to submit like a one minute video. And he said that he just knew based on their story that they were going to win. But here's the thing, he did not know until pretty close to the concert time, could have been a day or two before, he didn't know that he was gonna get the opportunity to propose to his longtime girlfriend, now fiance, at the concert. He didn't know that was gonna happen. And so he mentioned that they told him as little details as possible, which he was very happy about because he felt like it would make him even more nervous, understandably so, if he had known all the details. Now, Ashley, still thinking in her mind that, you know, they're supposed to be going, you know, on a hayride for the evening, I guess. She had not only been blindfolded, but she had noise canceling headphones on. She didn't hear anything and she definitely didn't know that they were there. Now, here's something else very special. Adele mentioned that because she's been absent from the scene for the last six years, and you know, since this was her first time performing, her first time back, she wanted to feel, you know, comfortable so that when she looked out into the audience, she would see people that she knew, people that she was friends with. So there were celebrities in the audience, people like Kerry Washington and Melissa McCarthy. I believe Drake was even there. Um, you know, so you have the audience and you have it sprinkled with celebrities. So Again, I knew nothing about that either. So just before they were to come out, you know, front and center, Adele tells her audience, shh, be very quiet. I don't want to sound like my homeboy on the Looney Tunes. <laughs> What's his name, Elmer Fudd? <laughs> but she said to the audience, be quiet, not a word. And if anybody says a word, I'm going to kill you. But you know, of course, she's joking. So the audience was very quiet. They dimmed the lights. It was nice and dark, you know. And so they signal Quentin to bring Ashley out. He does that. And he's down on one knee. And uh, since he's now, you know, poised for the proposal, he then instructs her to take off her blindfold. 
So immediately when she sees him down on one knee, ladies, you know, I mean, for those of you who have experienced it, you know, your heart probably just pitter-patters and we saw the tears and everything just overflow. She was just like, what is going on here? You know, and he says some very like important things to her, things that I think a lot of women would love to hear from the man who loves them, right? He said things like, I'm extremely proud of you. And I mean, every day you blow my mind. He said, there's absolutely nothing that you cannot do. And I just know that you're going to be an amazing mother to our kids one day. And, you know, after he said that, you know, he pops the question and, you know, when he did pop the question she says you know is this like is this for real like you know is this really really happening and then she sort of like drops into a squat because she's just like oh my god I've like waited it's been seven years and I've been your girlfriend it's so funny that the audience you know they're laughing because you can't help but laugh right you're tickled by her response It's, it's very authentic and As soon as she says yes, and they both stand up, then the lights come up and she sees Adele standing there. And it's like, oh my God, like she feels like, am I even alive? So she's thinking it's this big dream. It's not, it's for real. And they're a really, really cute, cute couple. Uh, And I believe originally they're from uh, Syracuse, I wanna say. So, you know, I just thought that it would be nice to share that. And I'm kind of hoping that I get an opportunity to watch the concert because I didn't get a chance to, even though it's like a one night only, I'm hoping that somewhere, somebody is uh, going to allow us to see it again. But as always, if I can add just a little bit of sunshine in the midst of all other things that's going on, then that's what I'd like to be able to do. Okay, beautiful people. Let's see what we have up next from our musical jukebox. Hmm. Okay, well, in 1994, this American R&B singer covered this song for her second studio album, My Life. Now, her version was produced by Sean Puffy or P. Diddy or just Diddy Combs. You know, I think he'll answer to them all. And also Chucky Thompson. Right now, there was actually a featured co-production from Prince Charles Alexander and Mark Led Ledfoot, and it contains portions of "quote unquote" the What, which was released in 1994 by American rappers The Notorious B.I.G. and Method Man. Released as the album's second single, her version peaked at number 13 on the U.S. Hot R&B and hip hop songs chart, and number 22 on the US Billboard Hot 100. Now this song is frequently performed at many of her concerts, as well as at live sets. Here's none other than the queen of hip hop soul, Mary J. Blige with I'm Going Down. And when we come back, I will get into today's topic. Time on my hand Since 
since you've been away, boy. kings and queens today's topic is one that has sparked a lot of conversation across the country in fact it was this very topic that was probably what some would say was the reason that the governor's race in the state of virginia recently 
was such a tight one at the end, giving victory to Republican Glenn Youngkin, who had some other tricks up his sleeve, but that's a separate conversation. Critical race theory has been a hot topic in this last year, even though it is a theory that has been around since the 70s. So Village, what is critical race theory? Well, critical race theory or CRT is a framework of analysis and an academic movement of civil rights scholars and activists who seek to examine the intersection of race and law in the United States. And they want to challenge mainstream American liberal approaches, excuse me, approaches to racial justice. Now, CRT examines social, cultural, and legal issues primarily as they relate to race and racism in the United States. A tenet of CRT is that racism and disparate racial outcomes are the result of complex, changing, and often subtle social and institutional dynamics rather than explicit and intentional prejudices of individuals. So that it's more about, you know, um, implicit bias than explicit bias. You know, if you remember, I spoke, um, you know, last week a little bit about the differences between systematic racism and systemic racism. And based on what I am learning, because you know what, we're all learning. I am not a teacher. I'm just sharing awareness and giving awareness to the topic. But from what I'm understanding about it, you know, it kind of seems like it falls under systemic racism, okay? Now, as I mentioned a little earlier, the theory has been around for quite some time. It originated in the mid-1970s in the writings of several American legal scholars, including Derek Bell, Alan Freeman, Kimberly Crenshaw, Richard Delgado, Cheryl Harris, Charles R. Excuse me, Charles. I don't know what's wrong with me today. Sorry, ladies and gentlemen. My tongue is like stuck. Charles R. Lawrence III, Mary Matsuda, and Patricia J. Williams. Now, it emerged as a movement by the time the 80s rolled around, and it was reworking theories of critical legal studies, or CLS as it was referred to. But this right here, CRT, of course, as stated, it has more of a focus on race. So, CRT is grounded in critical theory, and it draws from thinkers such as Antonio Gramsci, Sojourner Truth, shout out to Sojo, Frederick Douglass, and W.E.B. Du Bois, as well as the Black Hour, Chicano, and radical feminist movements from the 60s and 70s. This is a huge topic, bitch. And I do not purport to have all the answers or to have ingested everything that there is to know about this stuff. But I've always stated, beautiful people, again, we're learning together. And I really do encourage you to do your own research so that you can come to an understanding for yourself, so that you can be aware of the conversation that's taking place in homes, schools, and churches across the country. And might I even say globally. Now, CRT scholars view race as an intersectional social construct that is not biologically grounded and natural that advances the interests of white people 
at the expense of persons of other races. Now, in the field of legal studies, CRT emphasizes that formerly colorblind laws can still have racially discriminatory outcomes. And a key CRT concept is intersectionality, which emphasis, excuse me, emphasizes that race can intersect other identities. So for instance, I'm an African-American woman, right? That is um, an example of intersectionality because what they're saying is <clears throat> because of your identities, whether it's your race, whether it's your ethnicity, whether it's you know your gender, whether it is your sexual identity, all of those things are in all of those levels you have been or can be discriminated against. So all of those things intersect and you are more than likely to be at a disadvantage of someone who is white. That's pretty much what intersectionality is about, right? And, you know, it produces these complex combinations of power and advantage as a result. So academic critics of CRT argue that CRT elevates storytelling. Really? So like once upon a time, there were these people on a continent far, far away and they were just minding their business. You know, they were like tending to their gardens and, you know, they were like telling stories to the little children in the village. And all of a sudden people that they have never seen before just showed up and shackled them and, you know, took them to the shores and put them on these boats. And they were packed in there like sardines and they were on these vessels that they were not used to, breathing in salt air that they weren't accustomed to retching and going to the bathroom and doing everything in front of everybody else just right there all in one big happy room. oh wait I'm so sorry <laughs> I, I'm telling a story that didn't really happen now <clears throat> since 2020 conservative U.S. lawmakers have sought to ban or restrict the instruction of critical race theory, along with other anti-racism education in primary and secondary schools, okay? They say that CRT is only taught at a university level, though there are some lower level curricula which have reflected certain claims of CRT. So a lot of what's going on, and when I refer to that election in Virginia, that's one of the reasons why, uh, you know, the, the Republican um, runner, you know, candidate, excuse me, lost. Up until then, when it was every other point that was being discussed, the economy, infrastructure, all of that, he actually had, ladies and gentlemen, a double digit lead. He had a double digit lead, the, 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 the uh, Democratic candidate, right? <laughs> but the moment they started talking about critical race theory, he made a very costly error. And one of the things that he said was that he did not believe that parents have a right uh, to say anything at all about what their children are learning in schools. So you know that he received a lot of backlash for that comment. And as a result, the race drew closer until he lost, basically. Now, I think I know what he wanted to say, and perhaps he needed to have somebody in his camp that was better at helping him say it. 
because parents have every right to know what their children are learning in school. Are you kidding? But I think that what he wanted to say is that this was an important topic and that we shouldn't restrict anything, you know, that is beneficial really for people to learn about, whether you agree with it or you don't agree with it. But I think that's what what he wanted to say, because we know that there are certain parts of the country, like if you live in the Bible Belt, for instance, and perhaps there are parents that oppose the teaching of, let's say, sex education. So they oppose it, okay? And and we understand, you know, why they may have, you know, op- um, opposition to it, you know, for religious purposes and everything. However, it still may be very important, though, for your children to learn about sex education so that they have a better understanding of their bodies and how to better take care of themselves and you know the more education in terms of you know preventative measures that is the reason why it may be important to have that subject in school but if you are going to prevent certain topics from being taught in school simply because you don't agree or you know you you have a different opinion you know is that really beneficial to future generations. Well, I think he was more like going in that direction, but it came out completely wrong. And it in fact cost him the election. All right. So this conversation of of including CRT in these schools, you know, it's happening all over and everybody that's against it wants to do everything they can to block that. So that's that's basically what's going on as far as uh, CRT is concerned. And lawmakers are being accused of misrepresenting the tenets and importance of CRT. And many feel that the goal of their restrictions is to broadly silence discussions of racism, equality, social justice, and the history of race. You know, we talked about this before with everything that happened last year regarding, uh, you know, George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, Amon Arbery, but particularly with George Floyd, because it had been the first time that people were able to see firsthand account of a Black man um, being brutalized by police to the degree that he lost his life, right? This wasn't a story that, you know, happened a few months before and, you know, the body cam footage was just now being released. We saw it live. We saw it as it was happening, right? And it stunned the whole, like, nation. And so now you have conversation, you know, around whether or not racial reckoning uh, was beginning to happen, so forth and so on. And so, you know, with everyone who is against critical race theory, the thinking is, well, you don't really want then your children to learn about the history of this country, the true history of this country, and understand like where we were, where we are, and where we hope to go, you know? Now, the Heritage Foundation is an American conservative uh, think tank conservative think tank based in Washington, D.C., and they're primarily geared toward public policy. The foundation took a leading role in the conservative movement during the presidency of Ronald Reagan, whose policies were taken from Heritage's policy study, which was called Mandate for Leadership. Since then, the Heritage Foundation has continued to have a significant influence 
in U.S. public policy making, and it's considered to be one of the most influential conservative public policy organizations in the United States. Now, the Heritage Foundation was founded in February, on February 16, 1973, by Paul Weyrich, Edwin Fulner, and Joseph Kors. Hopefully, I pronounced those names correctly. Now, Weyrich and Fulner sought to create a version of what they called the Brookings Institution, and that advanced conservative activism. So, you know, a lot of times, ladies and gentlemen, when I'm reading, I'm very much like a computer, analyzing, wondering, questioning everything. And so I had to know, well, what does, you know, conservative uh, activism mean? And conservatism, it is an aesthetic, cultural, social, and political philosophy, which seeks to promote and to preserve traditional social institutions. Ding, ding, ding. Traditional. Hmm. Traditional. What exactly, what, what exactly do we mean when they talk about traditional social institutions? Hmm. I'm gonna let that hang in the air for you all to think about. Now, there are many different types of conservatism. There's liberal, libertarian, fiscal, national, traditional, etc. But the ones that I believe are most befitting to this discussion are social conservatism and religious conservatism. So a social conservative wants to preserve traditional morality. Social conservatives today generally will favor anti-abortion in the abortion controversy. Uh, they'll support a traditional definition of marriage as being one with a man and a woman, right? They view the nuclear family model as society's fun foundational unit. They oppose expansion of civil marriage and child adoption to couples in same-sex religions. Are you kind of getting an idea here? Huh? Okay. I'm setting y'all up. I'm setting you up. And they oppose the separation of church and state. Really? Now, religious conservatism principally applies the teachings of particular religions to politics, sometimes by merely proclaiming the value of those teachings. At other times, though, by having those teachings influence laws. In most democracies, political conservatism seeks to uphold traditional family structures and social values. So religious conservatives typically oppose abortion, the LGBTQ plus behavior, as they call it, are in certain cases identity and sexual activity outside of marriage. Wow, we, well, then I guess we're all guilty, aren't we? In some cases, though, conservative values are grounded in religious beliefs, and conservatives seek to increase the role of religion in public life. So the Heritage Foundation hosted a discussion with Dr. Vodi, V as in Victor, O-D-D as in David, I-E, T. Bachman, who is a pastor and author of Fault Lines, and he believes that critical race theory is Marxist in its ideology. 
Now, I'm going to tell you, I listened to this discussion uh, that was hosted on YouTube. And if you guys get a chance, you know, you should go ahead and check it out. But just to kind of give you a little bit of background, he was born and raised South Central LA. Um, he said he experienced busing as a youth. He identifies more with Malcolm X than he did with uh, Martin Luther King. And he said that his faith changed his worldview. Now, currently he's living in Zambia, right? And he said he began to talk about or to consider uh, critical race theory when students in Zambia started to question him as to whether or not he feared the police here in the US. And he said, in his own words, he thought that it was a bridge too far because over there in Zambia is where they face real corruption because there's no organized police department. Now, after Trayvon Martin and Michael Brown's murders, that's when he started to really get involved in talking about CRT. And one thing that I noticed that he said in this interview um, is that the very thing that connects CRT to Marxist ideology is the word critical, which, you know, he says it, it comes or brings with it assumptions. He says that it assumes this oppressor and oppressed dynamic. It assumes that we have to look critically and problematize all things in a given society or culture with the assumption of this so-called oppressor, oppressed dynamic. Hmm. So he thinks that critical race theory brings up this idea of there being an oppressor and there being someone who's been oppressed. Um, and that it, it, it gives everybody the idea that, oh, I don't know, like America is racist, is basically what he's saying. And he opposes that. He opposes that idea. Okay, let me, let me, let me continue. Let me continue so that we know um, what else um, he had to say. He was asked um, if he thought whether or not CRT is a worldview or an analytical tool. And he said that he believes it's a worldview. Now, here are some of the main tenets that he talked about. He said, this is what people who believe in the CRT theory, um, you know, they think. That racism is normal and unavoidable. That white people are incapable of righteous actions on race unless their interests converge with minorities. Anti-liberalism, not believing in objective truths or meritocracy, excuse me, meritocracy, um, meaning like people, I always have a hard time saying that word, so I apologize, but it's basically like people who earn you know, uh, their, their, their place, whether, you know, it could be a school, a job or whatever. Right. And enlightenment. Okay. Um, also knowledge is culturally constructed in that the way that we come to knowledge is through narratives. Now, because white people are the oppressor and minorities are the oppressed, he says, the oppressors cannot have insight on what's going on unless and until they elevate the voices of minorities. And with CRT, that's the way that we come to knowledge. So the idea of the oppressor and oppressed, he says, is not scripture. It's Marxist. It's Marxist in, 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 in theory. Okay, because 
Marxism is, is where the idea of apparently the oppressor and oppressed come from, right? So I'm just thinking about this, ladies and gentlemen, and I'm hoping that you are thinking this too. But he almost makes it sound like as people of color who have been oppressed, that we don't have a right to have our voices heard regarding our experiences, right? And if you have never been oppressed, then how would you know <laughs> the disadvantage that you've been put in um, if, unless our voices are elevated or amplified? Like, I don't, I don't understand. If you've never experienced something, I mean, people say it all the time, if you've never walked in my shoes, how do you know how I feel? Well, but it seems like he is actually opposing that idea. Now, the idea that everything is racist, he says, and so we have to view America through that lens, you can't get there from any kind of biblical reasoning, he says. So not only is this theory at odds with Christian beliefs, but also with rational thinking. And so he feels that CRT just simply needs to be rejected. Really? Really? Wow. Listen, I'm a Christian and I don't believe in people being oppressed. I don't believe in people being enslaved. I don't believe that there's one superior group and everybody else is inferior. I'm a Christian. And you know what? Christianity, you know, gives us the example with the Egyptians and the Israelites, for any of you who follow. Um, there's a lot, though, in that book uh, that talks about the way people should be. And it doesn't necessarily mean that it's followed in our society. So why are we just throwing this out just because he feels it's not scriptural? How about the fact, though, that it's historical, that it's actual, that it's based on people's real life experiences? Even if it's not in the Bible, it doesn't discount that people experience or have experienced such behavior by those who think that because of the color of their skin, they are superior and because of the color of your skin, you are inferior, right? He was also asked, what are the ideological differences between CRT and Christianity? And he says, the idea that you can separate people into either the oppressed or the oppressor based on their ethnicity. He said the Bible acknowledges oppression, mm -hmm. but the idea that people would be oppressors based solely on their ethnicity and that you would condemn people as irredeemable sinners based solely on their race or ethnicity is completely counter to biblical truth. Um, again, what I just said, okay? All right, now. He refers to the Southern Baptist Convention, right? And apparently there were six presidents from the SBC who signed a joint statement denouncing critical race theory. And it said, quote, we stand together on historic Southern Baptist condemnations of racism in any form. And we also declare that affirmation of critical race theory, intersectionality, and any version of critical theory is incompatible with the Baptist faith and message. Now, the statement by the seminary president declared that CRT is a decades-old broad social science perspective, analyzing issues, analyzing, excuse me, issues of race, power, and society. 
it particularly explores the role white supremacy inherently plays in American society. And it urges efforts to deconstruct institutional racism. Now, this approach in their opinion, demythologizes, demythologizes um, American history to note the impact of slavery and other racial injustices embedded in legal, political, and even religious structures. So since CRT challenges dominant institutions that profited from racial oppression, some in the SBC see it as an inherent critique of the denomination's privileged status. The largest Protestant denomination in the US, the SBC, it was founded to support slavery. Hmm. And its institutions, which benefited from the wealth of enslavers. Now, additionally, Southern Baptist leaders provided theological justification for slavery. I mean, we all know that, don't we? That's what they use Christianity as, as a, as a way to, you know, convince the enslaved that, hey, we're doing you guys a favor. We're, we're taking care of you. And even though I know that that is true, I also know how those enslaved, um, perhaps maybe even from their own religious um, beliefs from whence they came, they believed they had a spiritual, you know, relationship. They had a spiritual grounding that carried them through with all of the atrocities and inhumanity that they faced as they were enslaved. So I don't throw the whole, like, I don't throw the baby out with the bathroom as far as Christianity is concerned, because I understand what it was meant for. But, you know, we take lemons and make lemonade all the time. You understand? And what man does and what man believes doesn't necessarily mean that that's what God does or that God is, you know, the one that, you know, is for this. But I'm not here to talk to you about religion or whether you believe or not. That's not what I'm here for. I'm just here to give you the information so that you will, on your own, understand and recognize that this is an important topic. And if it's going to impact, you know, spaces that you're in, whether you're at work or whether it's about your children, if you're parents, you need to know what's, what's going on out here, right? Now, not only did the uh, Southern Baptist leaders, um, uh, you know, justify slavery, but they also justified the Confederacy, Jim Crow and segregation, right? So since professors at the six schools must teach according to the Baptist faith and message, the new statement appears to disqualify any professor from espousing anything having to do with CRT. And it says, quote, all professors must agree to teach in accordance with and not contrary to the Baptist faith and message. This is our sacred commitment and privilege and privilege and privilege and every individual faculty member and trustee of our institutions shares this commitment. Now, the seminary presidents wrote in their statement, they wrote this in their statement, you know, um, having to do with critical race theory. So now that I've shared with you some of the things that Dr. Bachman had to say, let's take a look at one of the founders of the, the field of critical race theory, Kimberly Crenshaw. So while at Harvard Law School, she was one of the founders of CRT, a workshop which originated the term. And she explained in an interview to Vanity Fair and said, 
we were critically engaged in law, but with a focus on rights. So we wanted critical to be in it, rights to be in it. And we put theory in to signify that we weren't just looking at civil rights. It was how to think, how to see, how to read, how to grapple with how law has created and sustained race, our particular kind of race and racism in American society. Now, he has extensive credentials, which again, I invite you all to take a look at those on your own because I don't have that kind of time. Yep, that's how accomplished she is. But he introduced the theory of intersectionality in a 1989 paper, which was called Demarginalizing the Intersection of Race and Sex, a Black Feminist Critique of Anti-Discrimination Doctrine, Feminist Theory, and anti-racist politics. So influenced by Black feminist criticism, the main argument of the paper is that the experience of being a Black woman cannot be understood in terms of being Black and of being a woman, considered independently, right? But she believes that we must include the interactions between the two, which frequently reinforce each other. Her inspiration for the theory started during her college studies when she realized that the gender aspect of race was extremely underdeveloped. Although the school she was attending offered many classes that addressed both race and gender issues. Now, in particular, women were only discussed in literature and poetry classes, while men were also discussed in serious uh, politics and economics. Oh, she used this metaphor of intersecting roads to describe the merging of oppression. He highlights how Black women were treated by legal systems at the time, being seen as equal to both white women and Black men in regards to their sex and race, respectively. Thus, their claims of discrimination on the basis of race and sex were usually dismissed by the courts. So Crenshaw's analysis of the laws invoking and creation of social identities aligns her with the broader intellectual tradition in critical race theory, which discusses the same idea. So I like examples. So let's talk about an example that she offers. There was a case um, by the name of uh, DeGraff and Reed versus General Motors, right? And this is what inspired the writing and the interviews and the lectures. Now, in DeGraff and Reed versus General Motors, Emma DeGraff and Reed and four other African-American women argued they were receiving compound discrimination, excluding them from employment opportunities. They contended that although women were eligible for office and secretarial jobs, in practice, such positions only were offered to white women, barring African-American women seeking employment in the company. Now, the court weighed the allegations of race and gender discrimination separately, finding that the employment of African-American male factory workers proved racial discrimination and that the employment of white female office workers disproved gender discrimination. See what they did there? Okay, that's like how they got out of that, right? So basically, how can you cry wolf? Like, how can you cry race? How can you describe uh, cry uh, discrimination when black men are working here? 
And I mean, you can't say anything that you're being treated in a particular way because you're a woman because white women work here. But um, as a black woman, they weren't getting the jobs. Okay, so that's what she's talking about. So the court declined to consider compound discrimination, dismissed the case. Intersectionality is a word that we hear a lot these days, people. And I believe that this should give you an idea of why the discussion of CRT is important, as it includes the idea of intersectionality. As always, as always, I encourage you all to do your own research, especially if you are a parent. If this is a subject that may be taught in your children's school, instead of taking anyone's word for it, including mine, okay, because my tongue was all high today, I don't know what was wrong, forgive me, but learn about it yourself so that you can have a better understanding as to whether it is a divisive or it's as divisive as the opposition will have you to believe, or if it's necessary in order to advance thinking around racism and discrimination, in future generations.
Now that song village was Curtis Mayfield and the Impressions. That was their best known hit and it reached number three on the Billboard R&B chart and number 14 on the Billboard Hot 100. The gospel influenced track was a composition that displayed the growing sense of social and political awareness. Rolling Stone magazine named People Get Ready as the 24th greatest song of all time and also placed it at number 20 on their list of the 100 greatest guitar tracks. The song was included in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame's 500 songs that shaped rock and roll. And it was also named as one of the top 10 best songs of all time by Mojo Music Magazine. It was also inducted into the Grammy Hall of Fame in 1998. And in 2015, the song was selected for preservation in the National Recording Registry due to its cultural, historic, or artistic significance. Martin Luther King Jr. named the song the unofficial anthem of the civil rights movement and often used the song to get people marching or to calm and comfort them. Okay, village here. It is now time for this week's inspirational story. And the name of this story is called Everyone Has a Story. Huh? All right, so here it goes. A young man in his 20s who was looking out the train's window shouted, Father, look at the trees. They are going behind. The young man's father smiled at the man. And a young couple sitting nearby looked at the young man's childish comment with pity. Suddenly, the young man exclaimed again, Father, look at the clouds. They're all running with us. Now the couple couldn't resist and said to the old man, why don't you take your son to a good doctor? The older man smiled and said, we did. And we are just coming from the hospital. You see, my son was blind from birth and he just got his vision today. Mm. Now, what is the moral of the story? Besides, you should just mind your bit. No, sorry. <laughs> What's the moral of the story? Well, every person in the world has a story. You shouldn't judge people before you truly know them. The truth might surprise you. I've also heard it said this way. Do not judge others by your own standards. For everyone is making their way home in the way that they know best. Hmm. Sounds about right to me. Now our next song, Beautiful People, is by a phenomenally gifted musician. And this single was from his sixth studio album. And it was a part of a movie soundtrack in which the musician was asked by director Albert Magnoli to write a song to match the theme of a particular segment of the film that involved intermingled parental difficulties and a love affair. This song was his first Billboard Hot 100 number one single and it stayed there for five weeks. 
And it was also a worldwide hit. According to Billboard, it was the top selling single of 1984. It is certified platinum by the Recording Industry Association of America. And it was the last single released by a solo artist to receive a platinum certification before the certification requirements were lowered in 1989. Following his death, the song recharted on the Billboard Hot 100 chart at number eight. Its first appearance in the top 10 since the week ending September 1st, 1984. And if that is not enough, ladies and gentlemen, the song is ranked number 37 on Rolling Stone's list of 500 greatest songs of all time. And it's included in the Rock and Hall of Fame 500 songs that shaped rock and roll. Not only was this man considered to be a musical genius with a list of songs that he wrote for other artists as well as his own, but he is the sole reason, and I do mean the sole reason, why I love the color purple so very much. Here's the purple one himself, the late great Prince with the revolution. And here's When Doves Cry.
That was English rock band, The Police, with Every Breath You Take, which was from their album, Synchronicity, which was released in 1983. It was written by Sting. Now, the single was the biggest US and Canadian hit of 1983, topping the Billboard Hot 100 singles chart for eight weeks, the band's only number one hit on that chart, and the Canadian RPM chart for four weeks, while spending an additional six weeks at number two. It also topped the UK singles chart for four weeks and the Billboard US Top Tracks chart for nine weeks, while reaching the top 10 in numerous other countries. At the 26th Annual Grammy Awards, the song was nominated for three Grammys, including Song of the Year, Best Pop Performance by a Duo or Group with Vocals, and Record of the Year, winning in the first two categories. For the song, Sting received the 1983 Ivor Novella Award for Best Song Musically and Lyrically from the British Academy of Songwriters, Composers, and Authors. And in the 1983 Rolling Stone Critics and Readers Poll, it was voted Song of the Year. In the US, it was the best-selling single of 1983 and fifth best-selling single of the decade, honey. Billboard ranked it as the number one song for 1983. I guess that we can safely say that it was a smash hit. Well, kings and queens, we have come to the end of another show. I do hope that the information provided will be of help to you. Remember, it is always a good idea to do your own research, no matter what the topic is, especially if your life is involved. Thank you so very much for tuning in this week, and I look forward to being with you all again next Wednesday and every Wednesday at 6 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Please be sure to follow Village Mentality on Instagram at villagementality.ckm and on Facebook at Village Mentality the Podcast. You can also catch all episodes of Village Mentality on Spotify, Google Podcasts, Anchor, Radio Public, and Breaker. And there's also a link to each episode available on Instagram and Facebook. And you can also hear the show on uh, the Awakened Lounge is theawakenlounge.com backslash village hyphen mentality. And I also want to just say uh, one thing more about Julius Jones before. I had an opportunity to see a little video uh, that they um, put online uh, during his clemency hearing. And I shared it to my personal page uh, on Facebook, which is at Missy McGee, Missy um, McGee. Uh, so that's M. I-S-S-Y-M-C-G-H-E-E. And you should be able to find it on my page because I did share it to both my story and actual and actually on my timeline, just so that you can get an opportunity to kind of see who Julius Jones is, hear the sound of his voice. It's the first time in 22 years he has spoken about the case. And again, he maintains his innocence. And if you look at the case, look at the evidence, you'll see that he is, all right? And just remember, that God has got me and he's got you too. Be blessed, beautiful people, and here's to brighter days.